Night falls on the golden age of humanity. Sons shall turn upon their father, and his worlds drown in blood. The eye shall open, and the galaxy will burn. Join us, listeners. We go into the canon lore of the Forge World Black Books on Heresy Grad School. Professors Jason, Patrick, and Dave, myself, will dive into the lore of the Black Books and the Black Library novels that we know and love and explore the heresy as history. So get a coffee, get your notebook out, and uh, prepare to explore heresy as history with us on Heresy Grad School. Right. Woof indeed. Thanks a lot, Craig, for that wake-up call. <clears throat> so uh, welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Heresy Grad School, part of the Remembrancers Retreat. I'm here with Professors Jason, Dave, and myself, Pat. Um, and we're uh, we're taking a break from the Coordinate Deeps in Book 4 for a little bit. And so... Just as kind of like a nice palate cleanser, we're going over going over the warp cults in book five, the warp cults of the Age of Darkness. Um, I know as a Sons of Horus player, I've always known about the Davenite lodges and their lodge priests and things like that, but there's just so much lore and so many interesting things around this section. Um, and so I think we're going to start off with with Jason kind of giving a cool overview, and then Dave's going to do a little deep dive into some of the specific uh, cults, and I'm going to do a little bit on the uh, Davenite priests. Yeah, yeah. I think I think before we get too far into it, Pat, I just want to set it up and say, I mean, the warp is such a big part of you know, the, the universe, right? Like it's, it's, oh, yeah. it's sort of everything. And in, in 40 K, you know, warp cults, chaos cults are, are literally everywhere, right? Like any Eisenhorn, Ravenor, Gaunt's ghosts, um, any novel you read almost in sort of the 40 K genre, you've, you're, you're running into some kind of a, a chaos cult, right? Like the divine frattery, or you know right. the sons of sec or something but we don't have a lot of that in the 30k lore which is why i think this is so cool because it's it's an analog back into the heresy and um yeah i think it's, i think it's really cool the way they think about it and sort of juxtapose it with sort of how we think about chaos cults in um the dark millennium well i mean i think at least with you know in that whole comparison of 30k and 40k is the idea that with 30k it's brand new to 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 humans because essentially the emperor has brought about this great crusade and within that great crusade are these compliances of we are wiping out your culture and it is now the imperium you know yeah i think it's i think it's more than that but we'll definitely get into that um i think in in the podcast 
Uh, there's a really cool call out box on the primordial annihilator that we'll get to, but, um, yeah, man, I just wanted to kick it off. And then also I wanted to tease the listeners a little bit with, uh, with where we're going after this, but, uh, so it, it segues nicely. I'll just leave it at that. I won't say much more. <laughs> Good, te- <laughs> Good, Good tease. Good Yeah. But, uh, Jason, you want to take it away? Oh, absolutely. Thanks guys. Yeah, I'm kind of uh, looking forward to all that stuff we have planned for next episode, too. Nudge, nudge, wink, wink. Say no more. Yeah, say no more. All right, guys. So let's talk about warp cults here. So these guys are fascinating to me. Uh, Dave, Pat, and I are all fans of the mortal part of the 30K universe, And I think we all kind of have the same idea that they're such a huge part of the universe, but they constantly get overshadowed by like what the legions are doing at any given time. And I mean, keep in mind, like at their height, there's something like roughly what, 5 million legionaries. That's not even like a full conscription from a single planet of mortals. There are so many more going on here. So, The warp cults are something that's pretty interesting. Um, Like you guys were talking about, they are completely pervasive in 40k, but not so much in uh, the Horus Heresy here, and especially not during the Great Crusade. And there's a very good reason for that. It's not just that, uh, you know, chaos happens more in 40k, but what's really interesting, so we all know and love or hate the Imperial Truth, Hippocratic turd fire that it is. So, the great biggest... description of the imperial truth, by the way. Right, like we're we're gonna try and put that on a shirt for you listeners. Don't worry about it. <laughs> Hypocrisy, turd fire, ink, Imperium at large. However, uh, not to get too far off co- uh, off brand here. So the thing is. The imperial truth, there is only science in the universe. There are no gods, there are no demons. Religion is fake, there is just science and the emperor. And the thing is, as the Great Crusade is going on, it's not that warp cultists don't exist in 30k, it's that the necessary, um, the prerequisites for them uh, as kind of like a, a growth medium are not really existent yet. So uh, these warp cultists tend to pop up on worlds that have higher than average warp exposure. So uh, wherever the veil of reality is thin, these warp cults are typically found. And it was a standing mandate for the emperor uh, on the Great Crusade to, if these planets were found, that they wouldn't even attempt to bring them into compliance just like uh, with any other xenos race uh, worlds in proximity of warp events or a really high prevalence of psyker births would just be annihilated from orbit just like any other xenos infested or tainted planet Uh, because many of these warp cults too are commonly tainted uh, from contact with xenos lore or uh, forged by this high-level psyker, you know, with kind of uh, delusions of grandeur and like a messianic or apocalyptic complex. And so that makes sure that during the Imperial uh, Great Crusade, 
contact with these cults, anything other than in very, very small doses is relatively minor. Uh, typically, they pop up in larger compliance actions in kind of unusual circumstances, but the depth and their reasoning isn't really taken into account before they're just steamrolled over with the rest of the world's military. Uh, there is a small, small mention of something that just drove both Dave and I to distraction. Uh, the Gethera Warp Witches that were purged by the 8th Legion in the late 970s in uh, M30. It sounds amazing. Like, almost uh, like uh, for the Iron Warriors, the Black Judges. But there's nothing on the Getheran Warp Witches, and it is frustrating to a Damn point. fine biker name, by the way. Right? Yeah, just, just for our listeners, like, Jason and I both probably spent, like, better part of an hour trying to dig something up on the Gethera Warp Witches um, that were persecuted by the Night Lords across the Veramore Reaches. And I looked for Veramore, I looked for Veramore Reaches, I looked for Gethera. Um, none of those place names exist. I'm thinking Gethera might be a planet, um, or it may be a, just a name, but it's, it's certainly within this region called the Veramore Reaches. So, hey, if any of our listeners know anything that we don't dude uh, hit, hit me up and hit us up and let us know because yeah like jason said this this definitely piqued my interest but as frustrating as that is unfortunately yeah no details i mean come on guys you can't set up something that sounds that damn cool and give us zero details but anyhow so Here's the thing. Uh, this mandate of just obliterating these planets uh, from orbit kind of keeps contact pretty low. And this holds true up until about 50 years from the outbreak of the heresy. Now, if you guys remember, you know, your Black Library chronology, uh, the events in the first heretic, where the first word bearers come back, uh, out of the warp rift is about 60 years or so before the outbreak of the heresy. That uh, gives the word bearers a good five decades plus to begin to get this idea of heresy and to begin to seed these little warp cults intentionally in planets they've subverted. So the word bearers will conquer a planet. They will start to insert these tiny cults into the... Um, into the populace. And it's really interesting because up until this point, when the cults have come up, they've just been, like I said, steamrolled over. Almost they're kind of not so much hiding in plain sight, but I guess destroyed in plain sight along with everybody else. And uh, whenever they do catch any sort of exposure, they're just spun as yet another false religion that needs to be steamrolled over and replaced with the imperial truth. Uh, it's kind of almost like um, how Horus tries to explain away uh, demons to Loken in Horus Rising by just calling them another Xenos species. Uh, kind of the same deal. They're kind of lumped in there with everything else and then made unextraordinary, you know, by their inclusion there. 
So during these new compliances by the word bearers, there are tons of fringe worlds that had already been declared compliant that were secretly allowed to continue their, uh, you know, warp cult shenanigans or even actively encouraged to, you know, kind of spool up production. So as the heresy progressed, more and more of these civilizations were infected with these cults and more civilizations were becoming violent and starting to overthrow their masters and replacing them and that command structure with these warp cults. Uh, so it mentions uh, they've aligned themselves with the war master for a large variety of reasons across the board, but the results are pretty much the same. These are cults that maybe would have burnt out in a few generations, but since the word bearers have taken such an interest in them, they've really started to flourish. And a lot of, of the major source for some of these cults that get started before even the word bearers have a hand in it was uh, the quote religiosity of many of the ancestor populations. And what they mean by that is many of these planets that have been taken over during the great crusade, it may only take Astartes days, weeks, a few months to conquer a planet, but once they've conquered it, it's years or even decades until these planets have been reshaped enough to be considered a, um, a contributing member of the Imperium. And a lot of these cultures are still existing in these barbarous conditions that aren't really that much improved since the Age of Strife. Um, that, again, it takes like years or even decades to improve their society, to improve their infrastructure, and during this entire time, they're attempting, uh, the Imperium is attempting to educate uh, these sort of superstitions and uh, religions out of these planets, but they're not always successful. Uh, it even mentions specifically here that uh, this kind of mass failing of, you know, ironing out these warp cults and the religiosity of some of these populations, it suggests that the iterators were pretty ineffective overall because, uh, you know, those are guys to come in to replace these beliefs with the imperial truth, um, kind of like uh, imperial missionaries almost. So allegedly, no world should really be declared fully compliant until the iterator's mission of, you know, the full replacement and implementation of the imperial truth is down that world is technically not compliant so the uh, black book calls this out and it speaks to either monumental conspiracy or monumental incompetence however i do think there is kind of a third option that's probably more likely and it's kind of a combination of those two things plus it's kind of a little bit of bureaucratic corner cutting right i mean the emperor is saying you know there's no firm deadline on the Great Crusade, but it's moving along at a pretty fast clip. The word bearers have already been censured for taking too long. You know, it's not, um, it's a pretty speedy production that needs to happen here. And because of this schedule of the Great Crusade, they don't have time to stop and spend effort on each of these planets individually in the amount that they would require to actually fully do this. So, just like any other job where your schedule is pushed to the point where you know you have to start cutting corners like this, this is just the same thing on a massive scale. And I think through 
all three of those kind of combines to make sure that there's plenty of fertile ground for these cults, you know, to take up with different dissidents. So after Istvan V, thousands of these formerly denounced religions and groups kind of reawaken. And it describes things like things that seem uh, benign, like previously benevolent deities are now replaced and portrayed as more vengeful destroyer gods instead of, you know, benevolent accepting deities. And offerings of like crops and supplies are replaced with like demands for violence and blood sacrifice. And this is a huge problem because the depth of the reach of some of these cults is total. Uh, from both ends of the spectrum so far as the mortal society goes. So you've got large parts of hive worlds, of feudal worlds, um, even of some of the developed forge worlds that are really resentful of the authority of the Imperium that's already moved in. And anybody that's already thinking about you know, this sort of rebellion, throwing off the yoke of the Imperium, who they never wanted in the first place, this is now uh, gives them an entirely new way to do that. Uh, the Black Book calls out three different hives, uh, Gamma Horgan, Kato, and Avalorn, that are hosts to these really hyper-violent underhivers that are really eager to throw in, you know, with the Warmaster in the idea that they can move up from the underhive and start inflicting themselves and gaining the resources of the levels above them. Then on the complete opposite end of like a deprived worker class that's already, you know, ripe for a new savior, uh, you have really high-ranking expeditionary uh, fleet officers. So these guys are seeing the galaxy as a whole. They are commanding these fleets, um, you know, subjugating these cultures they run across. But the problem there is many of these cultures are considered aberrant. Uh, even if they're not destroyed entirely, um, they're still brought into the Imperium and they have to be ironed out. And some of those problems, uh, some of the things that may be considered, you know, aberrant, xenos tainted are purged, but not without the knowledge of these really high ranking officers. In the same deal, you have conservators and remembrancers. Their entire job is to record tales of the foe's culture and the foes themselves destroyed by the Great Crusade. So many of these accounts contradict the imperial truth by their very existence because their accounts of these uh, enemies and subjugated cultures that are, you know, they can be, um, you know, locked away and archived away to everybody but the high-ranking officers but there's going to be a little bit of leakage, you know, um, even without the fact that many of these accounts are just lost or they are, you know, subtly, you know, exposed to the populace or uh, even some of the senior conservatives are actually conservators, excuse me, are compromised. These accounts start getting out. And even some of them are preached to new warp cults as a sort of revival of these old religions. Now, what's really interesting is as these warp cults are starting to increase in number, 
uh, after Istvan V, even before that, Kalf uh, displayed a far more active effort to kind of contradict the imperial truth to anything we've seen before. Uh, the 17th Legion spent that entire five decades prior to the heresy seeding these warp cults in all the worlds they brought to compliance. They actually thought of them as sort of a uh, ho- of uh, holy worlds uh, as they were complying them. Uh, but even though they're seemingly civilized, they're still these, um, you know, hotbeds of heresy right below the surface. And on top of that, they almost attract uh, different cultures and kind of blowovers from, you know, other cultures that have been destroyed or brought into compliance that can't or do not accept the imperial truth. It's like a uh, sort of like a magnet for rebellion. And that is definitely seen in the most uh, the most prevalent way in Calth. Uh, the word bearers really made an art of these warp cults. And with that, I would like to turn it over to Dave to tell you a little bit more in detail about some of these really awesome warp cults. Thanks, Jason. Um, yeah, that was an that was an awesome setup, man. Uh, I just wanted to tell our listeners that uh, the hive worlds that Jason mentioned briefly, uh, Gamma Horgan, Cato, and Avalorn. Um, I did look into those a little bit. So Gamma Horgon is definitely only mentioned in this book, book five. But Cato um, has a fascinating sort of uh, alternate history. And Cato is only talked about uh, in White Dwarf 190 uh, on page 29. And the text of that is that Legio Crucius uh, took heavy losses defending the capital hive uh, against a hundred Slaneshi Hell Knights infiltrated uh, and attacked them. So super cool, given what we just talked about, sort of with uh, with knights and uh, and you know we love Titans. So Hell Knights, Slaneshi Hell Knights on Cato um, gets a little call out here, and then Avalorn also has a, a really cool history too. Uh, it's mentioned in Codex Chaos, second edition, page 48. And it's also brought back in the Chaos Space Marines Codex, eighth edition, under the Iron Warrior. So, so those two places both exist in the lore at large. But uh, what I'd like to get into now, I'm going to skip forward, I think, to page 141. It's something that Jason and I both have um, pretty strong feelings about. Uh, in terms of the warp and then sort of the imperial truth. On page 141, there's a call-out box called the Primordial Annihilator. And I'll just read it to you, and then I'll talk about it a little bit. At the time of the Battle of Kalth, few amongst the Imperium's rulers were conscious of what the numerous warp cults actually believed. Later, they would become all too aware, and later still, all such knowledge would be suppressed and declared anathema. At that early stage, it was guessed that the cults worshipped what they imagined to be deities within the otherworldly dimension of the warp. Certainly, navigators and astropaths, and perhaps the primarchs, were aware that the Empyrean was host to an order of life that had no analog in the material universe, but which was able to interact in a limited fashion with it. 
in particular through those who had been born with psychic abilities ranging from enslavers to Sinuyan. Sinuyan are psychically active, uh, I don't know, Jason, what would you call them? Little beasts? Like little brain sucker things? They're super weird, if nothing else. Yeah, the Sinuyan are definitely part of the deep lore of, of the Warhammer universe, and we'll, we'll get into that a little bit, um, I think, in our next couple episodes. But Yeah, I think we might touch on that <laughs> a times. Hey, yeah. hey, what did I tell you both about spoilers? I thought that was really cool. I mean, yeah, um, no, it's still cool, but don't get any ideas, listeners. <laughs> so investigations, interrogations, and single intercepts revealed myriad occult terms in use amongst the cults, much of it beyond classification, but there remained certain terms and precepts that appeared over and again. The primordial annihilator was one such term, a title determined to refer to the warp itself as if the Empyrean were some vast gestalt consciousness which the warp cults appeared to venerate. Others referred to the Octed and the Eightfold Path, ascribing an unfathomable formulae and a dark purpose to those entities they believed guided their actions. Right, so the Octed is usually referred to, I think, by the Dark Mechanicum, and the Eightfold Path, I mean, you guys know that. That's a sort of a dark um, purpose, right? So this is, this is sort of getting back to what Jason talked about. And it's in the early days of the heresy, the Great Crusade, the warp was not something that was imbued with like um, sort of a malevolent sentience, right? Like a gestalt intelligence. They were just, they were, they were extra dimensional Xenos races, right? So that's how they sort of played it off, right? This wasn't this wasn't against the imperial truth because these were not demons. These were just beings from another realm that you, you know, couldn't easily define in terms of species and sort of they didn't they didn't adhere to the laws of of physics and nature that we that we knew about. And I still think that has like some validity. So um but it's interesting as you go down the rabbit hole, you get closer to, you know, Moloch and the battle for Terra, where you see a lot of corruption, right? You start to see the, the really the downfall of the legions that I think the, the hypocrisy of, of the imperial truth, you know, sort of begins, begins to sort of come more into question, right? But um, what we've got in this book, in book five, on page 142, are the warp cults themselves, the ones that we know about that were present at Kalth. Um, and they break them out into three sections, and they specifically define four different cults. The first section they talk about is the unclean horde. And the unclean horde is defined as really pretty far gone, right? So these guys have already started to sort of manifest the signs of chaos corruption, right? The, the typical indicators of mutation and corruption. So they would have manifested additional limbs or um, they would start to grow horns, you know, they would have, ab you know, aberrations. So these guys were kept pretty far in the back by the um, the word bearers. So they were not 
standing out on the parade ground. They were definitely concealed within sort of the word bearers, um, you know, defensive perimeter lines, and they weren't really released until the uh, the whole betrayal was was underway. Um, what's interesting about these guys is there are two cults that are named, the Recursive Kin and the Ring. And very little is known about either one of these. Uh, they were both recruited from feral worlds, it's believed. Uh, they were... Um, they were both brought into the opening phases of the war, and they were able to inflict heavy losses on the defenders of Kalth. But by the time the ultramarines regained control of the defensive grid, they were able to counter assault and counter um, bombardment and sort of wiped them off the face of the earth, right? So they didn't last too long. Um, they had a high number of rogue and aberrant psycho mutants, which defines them, uh, I think, interestingly. And they call somebody out in general here, the, the Zenvar Call. Um, so they would have, the Zenvar Call would have a lot of abhuman mutants in their ranks. Uh, these guys were really third-line troops, and I love, how, <laughs> love the way they describe this. Really only suitable for hazardous environment labor, forlorn hope operations, right? Suicide operation, suicide mission, and zone mortalis clearance duty. The conspiracy of the traitors concealed the full extent of their psychological deviance, however, which proved to be far in excess of that which would have wa uh, warranted extermination on grounds of biological contamination to the Imperium. So these guys basically would have just been um, exterminated by any other legion that found them. Um, but the word bearers, of course, had plans, and so kept them and uh, and used them at Kalth. Uh, used them mostly in waved assaults, so where they could just overwhelm the enemy by sheer numbers and then died by the thousands, uh, either to the ultramarines or the Kalth defenders, or just because they were in the way and uh, you know, sort of indiscriminate bombardment took them out. So. They're, they're an interesting way to play, I think. They're an interesting way to think about some of the, the cults that were there because not all the cults are created equal, right? So these guys would be pretty far gone. They'd be a lot of fun to model, I think. They'd be a lot of fun to put on the table. Uh, you just have a lot of really, really wacky, corrupted dudes uh, running around and a high degree, of, uh, high degree of psychers. So next we have the Crimson Brotherhoods. And these are described as being the Brotherhood of the Knife. They were the largest and most effective of the warp cults deployed by the word bearers to Kalth. Um, they were brought in as second line Exertus Imperialis, Levy Auxilia. So these guys were capable of sort of standing out on the parade field and you know, they wouldn't have given themselves away. Um, their muster classification was light infantry with the terrestrial subtype feral or feudal regressive. So they weren't like out on the parade field looking, you know, like they came out of Armatura, the Academy or something. Um, these guys were still pretty, pretty feral, um, but they were effective and they were deployed in between 10 and 20 subsects with at least um, 10,000 per subsect. So Looking at those numbers, there's already 100 to 200,000 of those um, forces deployed on Kalth. And the members of the Ushmatar Call had already gained something of a reputation as a most bloodthirsty and brutal fighting force 
alongside the word bearers during the later compliance actions. And they were recorded as engaging in the most violent rites before and after and even during the battle. The excesses attributed to the forces during the Battle of Kalth, particularly by the harrowing accounts of civilian survivors, speak of the Brotherhood of the Knife fighting clad in rags soaked with the freshly spilled blood of sacrificial victims, which was likely to be drawn from their own ranks as from captured enemy combatants. Others had daubed arcane symbols on their skin with blood or hair or had hair matted with clotted viscera the byproducts of mutilations and acts of furious cannibalism beyond the countenance of any sane mind. Um, this next part is actually really interesting too, but that part makes me think more of like, um, if you guys are familiar with the blood pact, right? From, uh, from some of Dan Abnett's novels and Gaunt's ghost. Um, these guys are really, you know, they're, they're pretty debased when it comes to the, the rituals that they have before and after battle. This part is interesting. Many bore ceremonial blades and other melee weapons. Senior wielded ritual weapons since classified under the general term athame, fashioned of jagged stone and strangely alloyed iron. So I didn't know that athames were as prevalent as I think they are now, right? When I, I guess when I was reading sort of First Heretic and uh, some of the early Black Library lore, I thought these were like really rare, you know, like you were, it was rare to come across one of these ritual blades, but I don't know, the more I, the more I read about it, the more I think, man, it's just a warped blade, right? It's just got some type of, of chaos. It's got some spooky bits to it. <laughs> yeah, some spooky <laughs> bits. I don't know, Pat, what do you think? You know more about this than I do. I mean, so, I mean, I, I think it's interesting that like, just how, like, already from the, if you look at the Unclean Hordes and the Crimson Brotherhood, it like, the Crimson Brotherhood essentially sounds, um, like, almost regimental line soldiers that totally could have pulled it off, and then as soon as Logar, or Lorgar uh, hits the switch, suddenly they all turn on everybody. Um, but I feel like, are these the, I don't know if the, uh, Ashmetar call are they are they the militia that is with um the word bearers in first heretic or am i thinking of a different regiment i you know what i don't know i did not go down the rabbit hole on these guys that'd be pretty cool though yeah because i mean during first heretic i mean they're the main uh regiment or militia force that that is with them or with the word bearers are essentially uh completely sworn to them without a doubt and don't bat an eye when when things change so to speak um yeah that would that would actually make sense because you know these guys have a double purpose as well so you know when they're not fighting you know on the battlefield um as sort of you know line soldiers uh they're certainly willing to sacrifice themselves for you know, the dark ritual and, you know, the fulfilling of, of some, you know, demon summoning ritual or something like that. So these guys are definitely committed, you know, they're, they're all in, they drank the Kool-Aid. Um, (laughs) they're, they're, they're willing to go all the way. So, well, there is an interesting point in first heretic listeners, please, uh, come back and 
two minutes if you're worried about spoilers. Um, but if you're listening to the Heresy Grad School, then you clearly aren't worried about spoilers. Um, and this book has been out for ages. Uh, but there's a point where essentially the word bearers need to have the custo have the custodies on board think that they're sending messages to the emperor, but instead they use psychers or they sacrifice psychers to demons and enslave them to demons to like block uh, yeah. transmissions. Yeah, and, that was a really spooky part of that book, man. That was really cool how they did that too. Like they had the whole like upper deck confined, right? Like you can go up yeah. there unless you were you know, part of the word bearer. And I think you couldn't even go up there unless you were part of like the, um, uh, the, uh, what'd you call it? The, who, who are the guys The not the priests, not the the apothecaries, the, um, like, why am I forgetting this right now? Who are the word bearer chaplains, right? I mean, the serrated son could go up there. Um, but, uh, Jason, help me out. Who's the word bearer chaplain, uh, of the serrated son? Arkeltal. No, Argyltal's not a chaplain. No, it's, uh, I know who you're talking about. Oh, yeah. Zeris, right? Or something like that. Uh, um, I find it, because Aqualon really hates him. Yeah. Uh, but, so, like, the thing I found interesting, though, is that the Astropaths slash Psychers they used initially for for their ritual were were willing and were part of these cults. And so they died more quickly, whereas psychers that they sacrificed that weren't willing didn't die as quickly and made like the spell last longer. But yeah, again, we can right. we can go down the rabbit hole of like demonology and and like warp shenaniganry. But yeah, I just thought that was cool. No, that's good. That's I forgot about that. So um, the last cult that or i guess like the last archetype of cult that's on calf that we know about um are somebody called the mandari right and so the mandari are gene bound they're a gene bound cult um of which very little is known but i think for me they're the most fascinating um i did try to look these guys up there is no other reference to them that i could find um, but i'll tell you a little bit about what they are and sort of what they do. Um, so what's known about these guys from captured fragments and from their sacred texts uh, and examining sort of their dead is they were bound by some aberrant combination of technology and genetics to the service of the warp. Um, such a way they believed utterly they would be reborn immediately after their deaths into a new and glorious form. The word bearers, it appears, promised the Mandari gene kin that they were, in essence, immortal. While a great many of the warp cults committed to the Battle of Kalth and elsewhere likely held similar beliefs, those of the Mandari were far more than dogma or esoteric metaphor. Accounts submitted by Ultramarines units following the Battle of Kalth and subsequent underwar, underworld war describe incident, incidents of spontaneous mutation of a singular character far beyond the most extreme cases of bio-aberration previously recorded by Imperial savants, up to and including the bloody revivification of the dead. Forensic examination of recovered corpses by the Legion's apothecaries obtained during the Underworld War also record numerous medical anomalies, such as unnecessary surgical interventions 
and seemingly non-functioning implantations of extraneous foreign matter. Um, so, so these guys were pretty twisted. Um, they were putting some stuff inside of them, which didn't necessarily help with the normal uh, functions of day-to-day life, but certainly had some type of, of warping effect on them. And what happens when they, so within a period of a few minutes to several hours after death, the body of a slain Mandari might begin to convulse and then thrash, bones snapping and flesh distending to the extent of acquiring additional mass by unknown means. Ruined flesh would re-knit and the fallen Mandari becoming a bent, split, and twisted thing, which bore little resemblance to the human form and that moved across the ground in an entirely unnatural rapid gait and was impervious to pain and trauma. Killing the returned Mandari took bravery, discipline, and concentrated fire. And the defenders of Cal soon learned that only severe trauma inflicted to a Mandari cultist's central mass would ensure the horrific process did not occur. By their very nature and the fact that they could only be killed by the most destructive of means, the reanimated Kal Mandari proved impossible to study. So... I mean, these guys just sound like like fucking super badass zombies. Um, like as soon as you kill them, they're gonna just they're gonna come back, and then the only way to kill them again is just just pretty much like obliterate them. Bring out the heavy flamers, right? Yeah, totally. Bring out the the heavy stubbers. So they um, they sound like super sentient zombie men or cultists. Yeah, yeah. Like they they do some. There's some ritual they under through a combination of, of technology and genetics, which is really interesting. I like that. I like the idea that you can sort of encode warp into your genetics, which is obviously what the Primarchs did, right? Which is part of the Primarch project. Right. Um, the Emperor, you know, used the gene labs on Luna and his knowledge of the warp to encode that into their genetics. So these guys obviously figured out a way to do it too. Um, I don't, I don't know, Pat or Jason, I don't know if you guys read um, Praetorian of Dorn and the what is it, Andromeda 17. She's part of the almost extinct gene cult of, uh, of Luna. I can't remember where their names are. But um, it made me think of this a little bit. Like, obviously, they're not as corrupted or tied to the warp as, as the Mandari are. But um, it's sort of similar in that you can encode certain things into genetics. Like they had in the Andromeda 17, the gene cult on Luna had, had a super high percentage of psychers and they were all women too. So I, w- I want to say they were almost all psychic of varying levels and they were all women. And so they had this, they were essentially, they were, they were born in vitro, right? So they were embryos. And they were just grown, and they were all reincarnations of a previous life form. But that's a little, that's a segue. Um, huh. That's kind yeah. of interesting. Yeah, they're super interesting. So I think, Pat, that leaves us with just the, uh, the call-out box on the bottom of page 143, if you want to take us through it, man. Yeah. So um, Davenite Lodge Priests, I know... Probably people have seen the the Forge World model for these guys, and you've heard about them. Uh, they were in, uh, you know, they were on Davin, or they're Davinites. But you know, when Horus fell to uh, to the uh, what was the actual name of the blade? I'm trying to remember. Um, 
Help me out here, Dave. It was the it was the Serpent Lodge. Right. I mean, the Serpent Lodge saved him and essentially showed showed the War Master, the universe, and the primordial. It was the first. It was the Athame, right? That yeah, they it was, stole from it was the, the first Athame that we the found. First, yeah. 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 Sorry. Um, yeah, and after that, the Davenite Lodge priest essentially became integral in all of the traders' plans, and there was even an entire like society of them living on um, the Ventral Spirit. Uh, but what I found interesting is like they. Um, at the the second paragraph of this call out and and I'll just read it out the warrior lodge priests appear to serve a higher interest than the individual cults and may have been acting in concern uh, with certain conspirators at the highest levels of the traitor leadership in particular with the dark apostles of the word bearers who it is apparent had a hand in countless atrocities across thousands of worlds while some lodge priests served as advisors in matters of prophecy and the warp others acted as high priests under whom multiple cult bodies could be gathered together all were schooled in the darkest arts of warpcraft and were able to call upon and wield the most terrible of warp-born powers and aberrant psychic abilities making them one of the most dangerous classes of the war master's allies outside of the traitor's legion astartes um and it's kind of interesting uh not everyone has read the short story but in the short story uh twisted it it's about malagers the twisted and it happens right before um all the events on moloch and things like that essentially he is trying to figure out what the davenite lodge uh which is the serpent or which is a sect of the serpent lodge on the vengeful spirit once and they try and trick him and they try and essentially put a demon in his body in order for them to get to the war master. Cause they think the war master is like, if he dies or if they get some of his blood, um, they can use that and open up the rift and bring even greater demons out. And he, he actually kill he actually kills the entire, uh, the lodge at the end of that book. So spoilers. Wait, Malagurus kills the entire, Serpent yep. Lodge? Mm-hmm. Before Moloch? Before Moloch, yeah. In the Bef- in the Twisted, they they um he's trying to find more power and uh they they try and trick him into a ceremony to put a demon inside of him. Um but he already knows what what's happened or what's going to happen, and so he he goes through the ceremony and then like says a call call sign and suddenly an entire squad of sons of horus veterans pops up and kills everyone cool and he learns the demon's name that they want to use against him and so he he uses that to kill the demon malgurst pretty cool guy yeah um like like malgurst yeah but i mean so even then the like the way the the lodge priests are described, like they also had a big hand in just like the warrior lodges of of the Astartes, at least the trader Astartes, and even some of the loyalist Astartes who had lodges, um, just kind of spread the word, and the war master used them to to spread the word throughout the galaxy, like 
Post yeah, so Davin. Yeah, I was yeah. going to say, this is like after Davin, right? So after Yeah, Ahorus this is right is after Davin. Sort of resurrected, and then the the priests of the Davinite lodges are sort of what they're like. They're like given carte blanche, and they're added into the um, into the expedition. Yeah, so like, you know, like from Remembrancers um, or archi- other archivists, they're just suddenly there. They're part of the that human crew, that human population. And yeah, but you know, so we know about the serpent lodges, and actually, this ties back to our night discussion. Discussion, but House Earthane, um, Horus sent an envoy of uh, of Raven Lodge priests uh, to to them, and so that is why all of their well, that's one of the reasons why all of their knights have the uh, Raven symbol on them and all their call out boxes. That's pretty cool. It's because the Raven was a sign of like godliness, um, and and a greater power. And so, like that, almost solidified the part of House Earthane that that stayed with Horus that didn't go, you know, free blade or mercenary. Um, that solidified their 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 loyalty to him as traitors. Yeah, man. I mean, they're they're a fascinating sort of example of like a warp cult that has become so prevalent that th- they're essentially like that's their whole culture, right? It's like the culture of Davin. Yeah. You know, it's just pervasive and they have, they're described as having really the most powerful aberrant psyker abilities. So even like, you know, your, your basic warrior lodge priest is going to be probably like a, like a beta or gamma level psyker. Right. So most definitely. Yeah. Um, So they're, they're pretty, they're pretty infused. Yeah. Uh, And then like, so also uh, I mean, just as kind of like another side note is uh, the thing about Davin is, is that like it was used to, it was essentially right in the middle of the rune storm when they were trying to create it. Um, but it was then uh, destroyed by, I'm trying to remember, I think it was Sanguinius uh, Gilman and the lion and the lion. Yeah. yeah that brought, it basically caused the rune storm to blow out like a bait over time. But yeah, that was that, I don't know that whole story as well as I want to, like why Davin was the focal point of the rune storm. Um, when I thought it was Lorgar's like machinations in sort of Ultramar and Kalth and then on new Syria, like I thought it was Lorgar setting up all of that through all the sacrificing and yeah, all the, the chaos, yeah. cultiness. Yeah. I thought that was interesting too. And that's, that's another rabbit hole that, that we're going to have to hop down, but just the idea that like, you know, Davin plays a pivotal role in Horus realizing well, that, yeah. you know, there's gods out there and his father's doing it wrong. And then also this, this giant storm that, that stops everything, you know, um, J- Jason, do you know why the, the, the rune storm was like, do you know why the, Runestorm blew out when the lion Sanguinius and Gilliman destroyed um, Davin. I don't even know what story that is. Gotta look it up, man. Isn't it Runestorm? Yes, I mean that would make sense. <laughs> I don't I know. Mean, the way it's, it's a little awkward. If it... Yeah. yeah. It turns out Runestorm is actually just the Primarchs having a picnic on Terra. Um, yeah. 
but like the way it's described is Davin is like the central point of that storm and it becomes a demon world. Well, I guess Oh, would... that's cool. Yeah. I mean, that's where Horus was eventually I mean, he was initially reborn there. So right. Kind of like the I don't know, ground zero of the heresy. The epicenter. Yeah, I could see that. And then afterwards, when, the, yeah, okay, I guess I got to go read that story now. But I mean, there's that whole thing of like, there are echoes in the warp. And so, like, I'm, like Jason was saying, I imagine something like that, something that pivotal and something that important would have such an echo that that'd be like the perfect place to do it. Um, which, well, yeah. Like, I mean, I, I mean, Cadia would be another good example of, of where they, they could have done it, but the Eye of Terror is already there. Um, so, Well, speaking of the warp and echoes and what lives in the warp, I feel like that's a really good segue into what we're going to be talking about probably for the next few episodes. I don't Do know. We, should we really tell them or should we let them guess some more? I don't know. I mean, it would be more fun to, like, leave them <laughs> spitefully hanging and have them guess. Yeah. And just, like, tease little things. Like, we'll we'll put the corner of a call-out box here, or, like, a single <laughs> letter on the Facebook page. What page Perfect. does this go to? Um, yeah. I'm all for it. <laughs> but no, let, let's, let's not keep them guessing. Um, Dave, Jason, if you would do the honors. Well, I think an important thing to know about all three of us, uh, besides just, you know, being really cool dudes, is uh, all three of us share something in common. Uh, we really that, like sports. Yeah, totally. I do <laughs> the sports, uh, earn the points. Uh, however, we're also all Thousand Suns players. So, uh, That's true. Yeah, Dave, Pat, and I are going to be diving deep, deep into that sweet, sweet lore. Uh, very apropos, considering our next topic over the next probably more than just a few episodes, it's going to be the history of the Thousand Suns and the Fifteenth Legion as a whole. Yeah, definitely looking forward to it. We're do a lot of exploration of the early lore of the Fifteenth Legion, probably as far back as we can go right like yeah sort of, i know they were part of the initial or they were part of some of the late compliance not late compliance they were part of some of the late unification wars which is right, pretty before they bad. were thousand sun yeah um, man yep yeah all that pre prospero territory is is super interesting to me and actually that's the way i'm going with my um thousand suns but, but really yeah you're gonna but, paint them up like that? Yep, I'm gonna paint them in that in that off-white livery, and then the uh, the orange and yellow, and just the M. Yeah, that's oh, so fucking cool, man. I love that. I'm gonna take a page out of our uh, dear friend Dave Sampson's book at Black Label Painting because yeah, that's his Adepticon army. Uh, I think it was his Adepticon. Oh, I think he had to. I think he Did had he get to. buried in Titans? I think he got buried in Titans. Yeah. Oh, I know. Poor Dave. I know. I know. But it'd be cool to have him on, actually, and just see what he, uh, you know, where he was going with that whole theme. 
yeah um and yeah so ex- expect the next episode to be our our syllabus episode you know make yeah. make sure you have your your pads of paper um or your data sheet and be ready to figure out where we're getting into sounds good yeah well, well I think one last thing I want to say before we go. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> I was thinking about this while listening to you guys talk. And I realized earlier, I, uh, I called the Emperor's plan and the Imperium as a whole kind of a Hippocratic turd fire. <laughs> and yes. I stand by that statement. I just need the listeners to know that as long as I've been in healthcare, I do know the difference between Hippocratic and hypocritical. And yeah. I just, uh, that, that probably would have been a good thing to mention. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's true. It's true. You're on a roll. I didn't want to say anything. But... The emperor can do no harm. That's really, <laughs> really what Jason's trying to say. Yeah. yeah. His sons can, but, but no, the emperor can do no harm. The emperor <laughs> only has your best wishes. Oh, man. It's I mean, he had, to, he had to break <laughs> his Hippocratic oath to kill Horus. Oh, sorry. Spoilers. I will um, say, though, I will say this, right? So... So, like, if you're the emperor, right, and we've had this conversation before, like, if you're the emperor mm-hmm. and you know that the warp exists and you know there are, like, m- malicious and malevolent entities in the warp, what's your best way of getting people to just not? And then, and, but then also that those, those entities feed off of people's belief in the warp, right? Like, what's your best counter to that? It's just to get people to not believe in that shit, right? Like, I mean, that's the gambit. Right, but I mean, it, it's not just the belief that, that feeds the warp entities. It's any type of emotion. It's any type of battle. Like, I mean, shit, yeah, there's, uh, a, yeah, 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 yeah. There's, a, there's a demon rolling around that's the incarnate of, like, Genghis Khan. I'm trying to remember its name, but Jason probably uh, knows the, it. The uh, Doombreed. There you go. Or, um, heck, look at... Uh... Uh, got, uh, Talon of Horus, absolute coolest 40k book ever written. I still need to read that. Yeah, uh, look at uh, Iskandar Kion. Uh, dude, like, traps demons in tarot cards for a living. <laughs> That's pretty yeah. badass. His most powerful is essentially like a wingless bloodthirster called the Ragged Knight. Uh, it's a cornate manifestation of every bit of violence and bloodshed that happened during the uh, the crusades you know on terra like the entire point of that holy war as like you know in summation created a cornate being wow right it's badass <laughs> cool guys well that was a little probably a little taste of where we're going to go in the thousand suns, man. If anybody knows about the warp, it's, it's the 15th Legion. Like they know about the warp, but they don't want to tell you about it. Also true. Yeah. Yep. I mean, you can't, you can't handle it. It's like, giving, <laughs> it's like giving a child an automatic weapon. It's not something you want to do. It's unsafe. They're a danger to themselves and anybody around them. It's perfect. That's a very apt description of it. Perfect. I thought so. So we'll just keep all the lore because, you know, we know what to do best with it. And nothing will ever go wrong, ever. (laughs) Oh, but uh, 
I think uh, that's it for us. Do you guys have any plugs before we uh, head out? Uh, Coke Zero keeps me alive. All right. That's about it. So, uh, Coke Zero, we shall be expecting our uh, sponsorship check and our hats and our t-shirts and everything else, and I'll wear it at every single event. Um, <laughs> I will get the tattoo. You heard it here first, first people. Uh, Jason will get a Coke Zero tattoo. Not sure how his wife will feel about it, but you heard it here first. Um, hey, cool. Hey, if you guys are at Adepticon and you guys want to come say um, I'll be there. I'll be at the Titan Tables um, for the God Machine events uh, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. Come over, say hi. Um, I'll have some some party favors with me. If you come over here or you come find me and tell me you, you listen, then uh, I'll definitely be able to hook you up with something. Yeah, and and go take a look at Dave's beautiful Legion, Legio. I mean, he has some absolutely beautiful Titans. Um, and I hope you, you get some fantastic engine kills, Dave. Yeah, man. They might all be my own, but they'll be amazing. Hey, that's all that matters. <laughs> Remember, 30K is narrative first. That's right. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, hope you all enjoyed listening, and uh, we'll see you next time. So, uh, fuck off, Craig. Fuck right off, Craig. <laughs>